This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Welcome to this week's episode of Burn It All Down. It's the feminist sports podcast you need. I'm Brenda Elsie, Associate Professor of History at Hofstra University in New York, and this week I get to steer the ship. I'm joined by the brilliant Jessica Luther, independent journalist, weightlifter, PhD candidate, and baker in Austin, Texas, the indomitable wordsmith Lindsay Gibbs, who has launched the amazing new sports newsletter Power Plays, which you should all subscribe to. She's in D.C., and the fierce Shireen Ahmed, freelancer, activist, and the world's snuggliest person in Toronto, Canada. <laughs> I'm not even exaggerating. On this <laughs> week's show, we're going to talk nepotism in sports, just in time for all of your family garbage over the holidays. Shireen speaks with Maggie Murphy about women's football in the UK and the only club that pays men and women equally, Lose FC. And finally, we'll talk holiday traditions in sports. But before all that, let's talk about somebody who's frequented our burn pile before. The mentee of the terrible Bobby Knight, Coach K, who led his team to an 85-83 <laughs> loss to the much lower ranked Stephen A. Austin Lumberjacks. Before people get all sad about me bullying college employees, Coach K will make over $7 million this year. <laughs> So, did anyone see that amazing play that he had constructed? That was like the first thing I saw. Like before I even knew that Duke had lost, as I saw <laughs> the picture of the play that he drew up because it was like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like that it was game mm -hmm. was tied in yeah. overtime and Duke had what, like four or five seconds last possession. And so he drew up a play and um, I was looking at. Uh, I, SB Nation has a roundup of like people's tweets about this because it's really hard to explain like being on a podcast like explaining what it looks like so that people who haven't seen it and I honestly don't know how to describe <laughs> it like you should go look at it a lot of people called it like a bird <laughs> or a, a turkey specifically but my favorite one there was a lady named Julia Kate E. Culpepper and she described it as <laughs> a ghost fishing for other ghosts which is what it looks like <laughs> Like, it's a mess. It's just like a beautiful mess that then turned into a mess on the court. <laughs> it, was, it was a disaster. Like, it was a, <laughs> it, it was, the play was, I, I'm a UNC fan. I'm a Tar Heel fan. So Duke losing makes me like extra duper happy. And the final whole last play was just like, it looked, <laughs> honestly, they kind of did it exactly as drawn. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was like the ball got stuck and then there was a turnover and then like there were all this crowd of people like honestly i think they did exactly what he told them to do and then Stephen a austin stole it and got like an easy layup at the end but it was great because the guy who got the layup at the end he had had like a go
GoFundMe that I think was before everyone freaks out, like the compliance office did approve it, but it was to get his family help after the hurricane in the Bahamas. And so after like he made that game winning layup, obviously that got a lot of attention. And I think, you know, they got a lot of money to help his family. Of course, it's sad that we need GoFundMes for things like that, but that was a, and that it takes moments like that, but that was a nice. I have thing, no artistic talent um, that came whatsoever, from and finally, I felt like, oh wow, a very recognized coach that can draw like me. It was the worst thing <laughs> I have ever seen. I was like, what is he? What is he doing? And it, it did. It reminded me of, of like literally the way that I draw. You know, the ghost from Pac Man, like the video game. That's what it looked like <laughs> yeah. to me. It's so bizarre. But I couldn't figure out for people who haven't seen it. We'll put it in the show notes, but I couldn't figure out where the people were. Like, like, like it was neither. Well, neither could they. Fluid motion. Like, it was, I mean, it did kind of I'm dying here. Look like a turkey, but I couldn't figure out what the people, who, where were the players? Like, no, I don't know. I mean, he's an educator. So I guess he has his own pedagogy. (laughs) Afterwards, I I guess in the press conference, he was um, gracious enough to say that they were outplayed or perhaps the better word was outcoached. And then he's since said something about being off and just he wasn't good those couple of days, which, you know, is probably the most humane thing I've ever heard him say. So there's that. (laughs) All right. So the holidays bring up a lot of feelings about families, a lot of family time, a lot of gratitude, maybe a little bit of friction. And so it seemed like the perfect time to talk about nepotism in sports. Shereen, you want to lead us into the conversation? Sure. Thanks, Brenda. We all know that nepotism is a structure that works among the privileged and you know, what happens and those who are in power in this country and this continent, rather, and even all over the world, bring their own into the fold. Um, I thought about this when I found out that Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew, gets $90,700 a year as a quote unquote sports liaison for the White House. And his job is just to coordinate professional athletes to come and visit Trump. 90000 $700. And he golfs, which really puts him on the top of his game. He golfs. So I was thinking about this and I'm like, this is ridiculous. And I mean, the entire structure politically of power in the White House is all about nepotism anyway. Like we see that. The daughter, Ivanka, is at meetings that she shouldn't be allowed to. Like, I'm not even allowed into my dad's study. And, you know, like she's everywhere. And and I just, I this really hits me at certain levels. And I'll just bring this quick anecdote into it. Because when I was in university, I wanted to apply for a job. And I wanted to, my father worked at the CBC, which is a Canadian broadcasting corporation in, in Toronto. And the broadcast center is beautiful for those of you that's been there. And I applied to the gift shop. I had all the qualifications. I was multilingual. I did speak French and English fluently. People person, really keen, worked with my hours. It was just a perfect fit. When my father found out, he actually nixed my application. And he said that if people found out that I got that job, 
that they would assume that he gave me that job. And he said, no, you have to earn your stripes yourself. So like, I'm forever sad about that because I really wanted to work in that gift shop because it was just a really cool place. And I wanted to be surrounded by, you know, that, that environment. So that just has always stuck with me. So moving forward 20 years, I've come to the realization unabashedly as a woman of color that I will do everything in my fucking power to help my kids out and those commercialized communities. And if you want to call that nepotism, you want to call that what is me. And I, I guess this is just me sharing my perspective because I'm on one of those people who had parents that tried so hard to be have too much integrity. And then we see this. And so when it comes to sports, like, you know, there's another really cool article that we'll share and link that's called American Meritocracy is Killing You Sports. And it was with The Atlantic and it really struck me about this, like literally the way that youth coaches, just an example, put their children on their teams and they don't deserve to be there and how they pass over other children absolutely all the time and how in this pay to play system that can be really damaging and and, and it, it creates a whole bunch of psychological stuff and, and struggle for these youth athletes who can't really say anything to their coach but their coaches have an absolute bias towards some players so i mean i'm talking at grassroots levels i'm talking at very senior levels and i mean i just wanted to know what you think and eventually i will get over myself about the cbc job yeah that's amazing about rudy giuliani's <laughs> son oh my gosh <laughs> Can I just say, he looks exactly how you would think Rudy Giuliani yeah. <laughs> That is very true. Mean, but That's it's, very true. It's, I think it's okay, so, sorry. like, when I was thinking about this, and nepotism in sports is so interesting because you see it all the time, right? These sort of family dynasties. I think of it especially, like, with coaching or even players who whose dads or moms even played in that sport or another sport, a professional level. And, like, it makes sense on some level that – when you grow up in it, that you would be good at it and you would have a sort of knowledge that maybe other people wouldn't have and that would translate. I mean, this happens all the time in lots of different ways in, in other places other than sports. But at the same time, like thinking of it as nepotism or thinking of nepotism, it just gets at this thing that we talk about a lot on the show is the idea that sports are a meritocracy and that you rise to the top simply because you are good or or the best. And this idea that there aren't these structures in place that cause certain people to rise to the top um, above other people. And I don't know, Shireen, that article in the Atlantic and like the way that, yeah, the way that this even works <laughs> on the youth level. I mean, there's something distressing when you, when you start thinking about, about that. Before moving on to those very serious <laughs> and important issues, personally, I just want to take one more. I just want to take one more jab at Rudy Giuliani's son, Andrew. No. Um, which I don't know if you know that he had a lawsuit when he was cut from the Duke golf team. <laughs> no, but Tell literally us. nothing so- in that sentence. I think I could have predicted that sentence, even though I didn't know. <laughs> so, Every single part of that. So. <laughs> So, okay, talk about sort of privilege and the idea of what you deserve. So Andrew um, Giuliani, right, was aspiring to be a professional golfer. And he went to Duke and he was on sort of the golf team. What do you mean sort of? Was cut. Like, I think they let him play around. He's like a wall. Got it. Yeah, and, and definitely not recruited. Famous father. Okay. <laughs> and when the coach cut him, he filed a lawsuit. This was in 2008, suing Duke 
because his golf coach that had he made up accusations to justify <laughs> kicking off the team. The lawsuit, well, right. I mean, right. I mean, he's manufacturing accusations that he sucks. And anyway, I'm a terrible golfer, but I mean, he sued them. And yeah, it was dismissed. Anyway, I just thought that was like an important part of the whole nepotism case, like kind of the power that you wield, like what coach would want to also deal with that kind of, you know, that kind of static in their decision making. So it it brings with it, it's not even just this is the way I can schmooze my way on, but also your ability to threaten people and influence their decisions. Lynn's? Yeah, I don't want to say, like, I see this so much in, I mean, I hate this team, but this term, but like, you know, the ownership of the teams, like, you know, you look at kind of the worst people managing pro sports, like a James Dolan or something, and it's all nepotism, right? It's all family money and these, you know, these businesses being handed down. And, you know, of course, you this sports isn't the only place you see this, but it just makes me so mad because we talk about you know, of course, here burn it all down, we we bust this notion a lot, but there's all this talk about sports being kind of the ultimate meritocracy. And yet you have the people at the top <laughs> who are, you know, the ultimate kind of signs of family money, family wealth. And look, you see this in all aspects, right? You see it right, right now with like Jeannie Buss and the Lakers. Do you know what I mean? Like it's not just stolen by any means. And you see it in football, you see it all over the place. And I think it's really frustrating because these children of inherit these programs and they don't have, you know, they have a lot of people's lives like under their helm, you know? I mean, a lot of people's livelihoods and the success of their careers and their future. Now they're partially in charge of it all because of, you know, where, where they were born and the family they were born into. And there are very few examples of a child taking over a team from a parent and that going well. (laughs) (laughs) Shereen. Yeah. I just wanted to say there was another really, really great article in The Guardian from last January, so almost a year ago, and sort of talking about the difficulty that Black coaches have in the NFL. And it's literally, it's white boardrooms and like nepotism plays a big part into this, which I was alluding to and I was talking about, you know, meritocracy and everything like that. But it's a struggle because, you know, even with the Rooney rule in place, and this is in regards to the NFL specifically, there's still a struggle to get them because on the other side, there's not that push to mentor and create opportunities for young coaches to get there. Because very often at that age, you find those owners or their family friends giving those opportunities to people they know. So it's really not based on, you know, that kind of thing. And I will always come back to this conversation I had with a coach who's now coaching um, in, in the Caribbean and the West Indies. And John said to me, he said, well, we were at this conference in, in, in Austin, and he's like, there's just no, and this is, he's talking about the FA, the Football Association in, in the UK. He's like, there's just no place for me. And they really made him feel like there was no place. So he ended up, you know, being a Jamaican descent. He left the, Europe to coach internationally there. And although I will always feel frustrated for that, you're really made to feel like there's no place for you. And that's part of the problem is that, you know, it, it, this isn't, Although the sport and you look at the demographics of the sport and who makes up the sport, coaching isn't reflected 
at all across the board, either in the NCAA or in, in professional sports. And, you know, it makes us it makes us wonder about where this is going and what actually can be done. And it comes down to decision makers. I realize it's more difficult in the NFL when there's literally owners of those teams, which always makes me super uncomfortable. Like that just is weird to me. But, you know, what can be done? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I also just want to say, you know, Amir's not here, so we can also reference Steve Belichick, yes. assistant coach <laughs> for the Patriots. And that seems like one of those Rooney rule things, right? Like you're telling me that that assistant coaching position was actually open and minorities were encouraged to apply? Hmm. Seems dubious. I would just like to say that um, for women's soccer anyway, or women's sports, this also can be really thorny because the same level of scrutiny isn't put on those, at least in terms of national teams, as it is otherwise. So, like for example, the the women's national team, it was coached by former national team player Leonardo Cuellar, and he Cuellar was kind of a sort of superstar player himself in a way that he was um, really charismatic. And he coached the team for 18 years and they did terribly. And there was like retribution of players and all of this other stuff. And one of the things he did was hire his U.S. born son, Christopher Cuellar, to do the youth leagues, the women's youth leagues, who is now just taken over as head coach of the national women's team. So it's incredibly frustrating. It's not clear to me that there's any evidence. And then FIFA puts out, they get all the cookies. FIFA puts out this circular, like, look at this dynasty of men that care about women's soccer. Like, oh my God, it's so infuriating. He has a terrible record. No Mexican men's coach would have lasted five years with that record. They're in CONCACAF and they couldn't qualify for the 2019 World Cup. Come on, you know, I mean, no, no, all the props to, you know, teams like Jamaica, but like they weren't even given food. Like, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's like uh, you're talking like seriously. So anyway, I just want to throw out like anytime we see this in men's sports, you know, it feels like it's extra aggravated with women's Lindsay. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, you know, I, I cover a team that's the Washington Mystics where, you know, the head coach, his son is the associate head coach. And I mean, Eric Tebow is phenomenal. Like, you know, the players love him and he's going to be a head coach, I believe, sooner rather than later. And he's, you know, come up the system. And I have nothing like I think both Mike Tebow and Eric Tebow are phenomenal um, people. But it's, you know, it's worth noting when, you know, that. It, it's something that I'm around and that I think they're an example of a good way it happens, but it's still happening, right? It's still a form of, of nepotism. I mean, family businesses are just messy anyways. I'm from, but I have a fam, family businesses on both sides that both sides of my family, my mom's side and my dad's side that, you know, great grandfathers have started and that have kind of been passed through families and, it gets messy, (laughs) like on all levels. And I don't know, I just I wish there was some other way. But I don't know, like, I don't know what the answer is, because people are going to gravitate towards their families. And if it's done right, it can 
it can be okay. Like, like I think the mis- like I said, the Mystics are a very good example. And head coach Mike Tebow does take he he looks for former players who he can give coaching opportunities to and does a really great job mentoring them. So I don't think that he I think he's doing a good job giving women and players opportunities as well. But I don't know. I mean, it's like we see it all the time, right? Just these family ties that become defining characteristics of people. And I think that's a problem. Yeah. Well, we'll say that until we have future Biad hosts <laughs> from our family. <laughs> now Shireen speaks with Maggie Murphy. Hello, flamethrowers. I'm so happy to have my friend and someone I admire greatly on the show today. I'm so glad to welcome Maggie Murphy of Lewis FC. Maggie is a general manager at the world's only club to distribute revenue equally between its male and female teams. Maggie has a background in anti-money laundering, anti-corruption, and human rights, all things we support on Burn It All Down. Until recently, she was director of public policy and sport integrity at the Sport Integrity Global Alliance, before which she held a senior advocacy role at Transparency International, the world's largest anti-corruption organization. She's also held roles in Amnesty International and Minority Rights Group International, and became a BBC expert woman in 2017. 2017-18, she helped organize Equal Playing Fields climbed to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro in Tanzania. Um, We had actually interviewed Monica Gonzalez for that on the show, and with a team of 30 women from more than 20 countries. They laid a full-size football pitch and played a 90-minute FIFA regulation match, successfully setting a brand-new Guinness World Record for the highest-altitude football match ever played. And Maggie continues to be part of the Equal Playing Field Leadership team and set another world record in 2018 for the lowest altitude football match ever played and is now waiting for confirmation of two new Guinness World Records for matches held during the Women's World Cup in France. Maggie's lived and worked and played football in the UK, Germany, the French West Indies, the Netherlands, Rwanda, Senegal, and Tanzania. And she holds the BA from Oxford University, where she captained the university team and an MSc from the London School of Economics. Hello, Maggie. Hey, Shireen. Wow, that was long. (laughs) That was long, but I forgot to add the most important thing that you make an absolutely phenomenal banana bread, which is critical. It's pretty good. It's the reason that I buy bananas and then I don't actually eat them. I wait until they go soft and gooey and then I'm like, oh, I forgot to eat the bananas. Now I better make a banana bread. That's That's my tactic generally. Okay, this is an important question. Do you put walnuts or pecans in it? Oh, neither. I, I like it to be fresh and clean and pure, as a banana bread should be. Uh, okay. From time to time, I've experimented with putting a bit of peanut butter in the oh, mix. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I like I like your your position on banana bread and the purity thereof. So I appreciate that. So let's <laughs> talk a little bit of football. I was really excited to see. I think it was 2018. I believe that I saw the news that Lewis FC in the UK was going to be paying men and women the same amount. And it kind of floored me. I wasn't sure if I read correctly. Could you tell Mm -hmm. me a little bit about that? Yeah, sure. So it was in 2017 in July. It was just before the season kicked off. Um, 
like you, I was actually, I was nothing to do with Lewis. And I remember looking at it, seeing it online and thinking, yes, finally, there's a football club that actually is putting its money where its mouth is. We talk a lot about equality and, um, you know, treating women the same, but actually I, I found it astounding no other club was doing it. And this little club, it's a small club in, in Sussex in the south of England, not too far from Brighton, had just decided to to do just that. So I immediately, back then, I became an owner. So anyone can become an owner of the football club. It's 100% fan owned. So it's, you know, it's about, I don't know what it would be, 50 US dollars a year, perhaps. And so I just paid up and was like, great, I'll probably never go there, but good on them for, for, for doing it. I love it, you know. Mm-hmm. I had a tiny bit of history in, in the fact that I'd actually played against Lewis 20 years ago when as a teenager. Mm-hmm. So I kind of was like, wow, there's that club that I remember playing, you know, in a cold and wet and rainy English winter. Look, look what they're doing. You know, it's possible to be a small, tiny club and do something incredible. But it's actually just, it's just, I guess in some ways, it's a revolutionary act, but it shouldn't be revolutionary. And yet it has been revolutionary. So uh, Lewis is now in the second tier you know, we punch way above our weight. So those household names of Aston Villa and Crystal Palace and Leicester City, Blackburn Rovers, you know, Lewis FC, who I'm sure the majority of your listeners have never heard of, is playing in that league. We drew Chelsea in the club in the cup a couple of weeks ago and we lost just two one to them. You know, Chelsea are stuffed full of stars. So we're doing (laughs) pretty pretty damn good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And that's despite the fact that, you know, we're the best club you've never heard of. The decision to do the pay parity thing. I mean, a lot of people really focus on the on the pay parity. So yeah, we pay the men's and the women's teams. They have the same playing budget essentially. Mm-hmm. But it's a little bit deeper than that, I guess. I think the club, what they decided to do was value women and men the same. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't just about, okay, here's a pay budget, you know, do what you can. It was, okay, well, we treat you equally. So we will split the revenue that we generate as a club in two between the men's side and the women's side. Mm-hmm. And so that means that we have the same marketing budgets. It means that we play on the same pitch. Mm -hmm. We don't have this tortured conversation about will we ever get to play at the men's stadium because the men's stadium is our stadium and our stadium is the men's stadium. Mm -hmm. And I guess what's happened has has been huge. So, you know, the crowd attendances have quadrupled in those two years. And that's despite the fact that we've actually increased ticket prices by 160%. Wow. So, you know, when you think about all those conversations that are taking place about, you know, we have to give away free tickets and then people will come, it's it's rubbish. All you have to do is value your women's team, mm. put your money where your mouth is in terms of the marketing and the pay, and people will come. So, you know, I think at the end of last season, we came eighth in the country for attendances for women's football. Wow. From from nothing. And, and I, you know, go back a couple of years and it, and it really was, you know, parents and family members of the players that were coming to watch and and now we you know we had 2000 people come to watch us play Manchester United last last season right i mean my obvious questions to you about this start with did anything break did the world of football crumble when you started to value <laughs> women footballers like no clearly it did not but just a logistic question when you share yeah. the stadium with the men are there scheduling conflicts and like people make it sound like it's a really big deal to share training facilities and and stadia like is it a really big you, you don't you make it sound like it's really not that big of a deal so number one it's making the, taking the decision to do the the pay parity to split the revenue equally it, it's not easy so mm-hmm. in some ways it is easy because actually yeah like you say the world hasn't fallen apart and the women's team are doing really well oh and by the way the men's team got promoted the first season that we did it <laughs> so it's not like you take from one and give to the other right. 
what you see is it's still difficult in people's mindsets. Okay. So, so what I've noticed, and this is, I wasn't expecting, um, Oh, it's fascinating, honestly, Shireen. If you could see my emails, sometimes I, I get every time something kind of goes wrong. Yeah, I, I, like the men lose three games in a row, or there was a, a web link on our website that wasn't working, or there was something else like that. It doesn't really matter what it is. I get emails saying, "Hey, you talk about equality, but your web link isn't working. You talk about equality, but the men's team is doing really badly, or whatever it might be." So I find that. There's people that will always, they're looking for it to fail. And I wasn't expecting that. I guess that's, and that's kind of even within the club. And I don't, like, honestly, our fans are incredible. Like 95% of people are like, this is brilliant. It's the best thing ever. The town is so behind it. Mm. Like, you know, Morale I accidentally up, have conversations right? with people. Yeah, people in the in the town. Like, I remember meeting this old boy in the pub and he was there watching the England men's team playing a game and he didn't know who I was. He didn't know I worked for the club. And he suddenly said, oh, tomorrow I'm going to go down and watch those girls play. I've heard they're all right. I've heard they're pretty good. And he he stopped going to men's football about 15 years ago, but now he was going to come back to the, the dripping pan, which is the name of our stadium. And he was going to come back and watch the, the women play. And that that's the kind of small things that is happening in this town that no one's really tracking. We don't have time to track and, you know, but there's real conversations that are taking place. And and because it's happened now for a couple of years and because the town is like, wow, we've got Chelsea coming to yeah. play. What? When when was Chelsea last yeah. at the dripping yeah. pan? Um, <laughs> so there is a little quiet revolution taking place in people's minds in, in the town. Um, there's this fierce pride, which is fantastic. But yeah, like I say, there's there's people that are still waiting for it to fail maybe that's just maybe that's just the the way it is so based on that that you get those type of messages and emails and trust me burn it all down and our flame flowers are very very familiar with this type of attitude what do you feel is helping do you think i'm so happy the town is behind you and all that kind of stuff and we see the benefits do you think that this what Lewis FC has done, do you think it can pick up and go to the bigger clubs? Or Because I think that we look at the bigger clubs and sort of say you should be accountable in this and this. And we've seen some. We saw Juve have their women's side play in like bigger stadiums. We've seen Real Madrid have a women's side for the first time. And, and you know, Premier League, we've seen, as you mentioned, Tottenham finally start, the Spurs finally have the women play in the men's stadium. So do you think it's picking up and generating sort of more momentum? Yeah, for sure. I mean, credit where credit's due. I think some of the big clubs are starting to, I want to say increase their value. Yeah, they are They are starting to understand that women's football is a thing. They are starting to invest more. I still think it's pennies, the amount that they're investing compared to the amount of revenue that they are able to generate. I think they're missing a trick, a lot of them. You know, the, the amount of money that they could... I still feel like women's football is at a point that you could buy a league. Like, if you wanted to, you would invest X amount of money and you would probably uh, revolutionise the team, the squad, and you would bring in the best healthcare, medical care, and you would just win the league. Obviously, that's not where we want to be. We want it to be more organic. But I also think that, you know, the clubs are doing their bit, but a lot of this drive has been because of the Football Association and certain specific individuals like mm. Kelly Simmons, for example, who has done a great job in in the time that she's been the head of women's football at, at the Football Association. The, the thing is, one of the challenges I think, though, for women's football is that w- we tend to get so over-focused on premiership football 
especially in the UK. We, we're so focused on on that that we forget that there's a huge amount of other football in the UK, like grassroots and, and non-league and, and, you know, small clubs like Lewis FC, the men's team are in seventh division. It's still competitive. You still get hundreds of people that go out to watch those teams every week. And sometimes I feel like our football strategies only focus on premiership right. teams. You know, yeah. premiership teams should have a women's team. It should be successful. But hang on a sec. Why shouldn't, you know, smaller teams have successful women's mm-hmm. teams? You know, Lewis, seventh tier, has just put in equal resources and the women's team are suddenly in the second you know, second tier. It's um, There's hundreds of clubs mm-hmm. like Lewis across mm-hmm. the country. And yet we're the only one in the country and we, we're the only one, as far as we're aware, in the world that is doing this. So I get a little bit concerned that the tactic for women's football is, hey, tap into your men's team. Tap in and, you know, try and get money from them. I think we should be tapping into money from other sponsors or from from other people that get behind this vision and these principles. And who believe and that? And that other thing that I mentioned about us being the small mm-hmm. club, because we have these principles and values, we have people that support us from around the world. We've got these owners in 26 different countries. It's astounding that we are revolutionary enough that we've got people in 26 countries that want to give us that $50 a year to keep us going. But there's no one else doing it. So, yeah, I don't know. I'm quite mixed. There's obvious progress. It's brilliant what is happening. I just don't want to be made to feel grateful for it. I think that's something that I feel. Yeah. And that's something that I think we, we've talked about on the show before, that the sense of women in any kind of sport need to be very grateful for what's being handed to us. And you're right, that's super problematic in, in its essence, that you know we should be happy for the handout, so to speak. Whereas you know, really investing and believing in this is, is the way to go. And, you know, I wholeheartedly, and speaking of which, I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, Equal Playing Field Initiative. Like I found out about it before you went to Kilimanjaro, which is amazing. And, you know, we did, like I said, in the intro, we had Monica Gonzalez come on the show and tell us about that experience, which was unbelievably moving for her. She, you know, talked about how much she learned from that and learned and met footballers. And what was really beautiful about it is that you really made a genuine effort to connect with footballers from all around the world. It wasn't American-centered or UK-centered. It was truly like my friend Hajar Khan, the captain of the Pakistan women's football team was there. I mean, Yasmin Shabzah was there in, in, in Jordan at the Dead Sea match. Like there's people from all over the place that, you know, like that was in for places that particularly from places where it is often forgotten that women play and love football. So tell me a little bit, how did that come to you? How did this even happen? Yeah. So I think, um, so it was completely by chance. I mean, most of that group got together through word of mouth and this is how powerful women in sport can be because we talk a lot, right? We talk a lot about some of the challenges that we (laughs) face and, you know, it's always on our mind somewhere. And I think that it was the right time for me because at that time, you know, I was kind of early thirties and had stopped, you know, playing myself. I never played at a proper professional level, but I was always like competing and something I was about 30 or so. And, and, and I was just kind of looking back and I was like, why do we make that so difficult? Why do we make playing football the, the most popular sport in the world? Why do we make it so difficult for women and girls? And it turns out that there was lots of other people having these conversations, whether in the UK or like like you say, we had players from you know Mexico, Canada, the US, from you know Tanzania, from Jordan, from Saudi Arabia. Uh, Hajra from Afghanistan wasn't able to come in the end, but she uh, you know, she's been a, a massive ally and friend since then. 
you know, girls from Nepal and Australia. I think it's a kind of crazy way how it all came about. Um, in many ways, all of us got together through word of mouth. Like, so as you know, a lot of women in sport, we, we like to talk. And when these things come up, we end up, you, you can't really not think about it anymore when you see particular kind of injustices or frustrations. I myself was, I don't know, in my early 30s at the time. And, and looking back at having played for such a long time and thinking, you know, why did we make it so difficult for women and girls to play football, you know, the most popular game in the world? And it turns out that there was lots of other people that were thinking the same and it didn't matter which country they were in. And it also didn't matter what level they were playing at. You, you mentioned Monica, but we mm-hmm. also had, you know, Laurie mm-hmm. Lindsay playing, but we also had complete grassroots players right. as well. People that had, you know, never had even that level of opportunity. And I guess in the end, what we realized was when we were kind of climbing was that it didn't matter where you were from or what level you played at or what religion you were. It all came down to opportunity, equality, and respect. Mm -hmm. And each of us in our particular countries, in our particular situations, at our particular level, we were each struggling with accessing those three things. So that that was the origins of how it came about. And, you know, we did things like fundraise for each other to be able to get us up the mountain because we didn't want it to be a bunch of, you know, white Europeans or or Americans kind of climbing a mountain and saying, hey, yeah, we did. It was really important that it was a, a global thing, that it recognized the situations that women were in around the world and that we started on the solidarity path right from the beginning. Well, that's that's amazing. I'm so like, I love it. I've been following that since the beginning and getting those. Okay, so what do the Guinness World Records do? Like, do they help in terms of um, marketing or acknowledgement or recognition or amplification? Or is it all those things? Yeah, well, I think the first one, it had to be something pretty special. And I think that one thing that a lot of us spoke about was this feeling that we had to do so much more to be respected Mm -hmm. or to be given, to be allowed to experience respect. So, you know, it's classic. All your listeners know that, you know, women kind of have to work harder and achieve more and be perfect in order to be, you know, a mediocre (laughs) male. And I think that it was something that we kind of almost wanted to put to bed. It was is like, how about we do something which is absolutely spectacular, something that is extraordinary, something that no one has ever done before and something that nobody can take away from us as being this like B version of what men do. So yeah, so, the, so climbing a mountain and putting a, a you know, a, a full-size pitch down and the goals and playing 90 minutes with FIFA referees, I mean, that's pretty, I guess it's pretty spectacular. And it was also important because, you know, it did generate respect and and it did generate attention. And we were proud of ourselves. You know, it it was something that united us all. And I think we we kind of thought at the time that it was going to be a bit of a one-off. But as we climbed the mountain, I mean, it was a very intense moment. You had to switch off your mobile phones. There was nothing up there. There was no network. You know, it was absolute one-on-one time with each other for the whole climb. And I think we realized then this was the start Mm -hmm. of something and not the end. And so since then, apart from the Guinness World Records, they tie us together. So, you know, we're able to do that, a big thing and grow the voice and grow the momentum and draw more people in. But actually it's all the stuff outside of the records that we're doing. You know, we're talking to each other quite a lot. We help each other out when there might be problems with a football association or, you know, players are in trouble or players just want a better nutritional plan because they're a coach and they've got an under-16s team mm-hmm. and they're doing pretty well. So there's actually just that solidarity again and, and the connections that 
we have with each other. And some, you know, some of those connections can only be born through having done something pretty intense and, and, but, but it opens you up to so much more. And, you know, we all understand each other's context a lot more as well as a result. Definitely. I was going to also ask that the, the first two matches were women's only, but the one in, mm. correct me if I'm wrong, if in France, the third one you had was for the longest match ever played. And it also included men folk. And is that correct? Do I have that right? Yeah, it was the, the biggest ever game. So it did end up lasting, I can't remember exactly, it was like three days or so, nonstop during the night, during the day. And it was the biggest ever five-a-side game. We also wanted to recognize, you know, male allies. I think that's really important. And we've had male allies supporters throughout. Uh, Prince Ali of Jordan was a massive ally of ours when we held our second Guinness World Record in Jordan uh, and has right. been a, a big ally for, for women's football in the region as well. And so we wanted to recognize that. You know, I think there's a there's a place for, you know, it's one of those themes. It's like we need to create an all-female space where we feel empowered and we're able to do what we want to do and at the same time we still want to have the door open for people to be like yeah we're part of this as well so yeah that was it was important for us to 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 do that we'll see what happens in the future we're all pretty exhausted as well because it's it's full-on doing doing the the world records they put you through the mill a bit yeah, for sure. And it was really interesting to watch and to see how that was developing and, you know, where you're going with this. I mean, I just, you have a lot of fans around the world. And I remember when it started out as a much smaller organization to grow into something. And there's always something really wonderful about that. So now that we're heading towards the holidays, is there something that they're going to change directions a little bit? Is there anything that you're looking forward to the most with the holidays? Okay. So this isn't, uh, apart from all my radical stuff at work or, or stuff that seems radical, <laughs> this is completely not radical. I'll be heading home. I have a, a huge family. So I'm one of five and you know my parents are both one of seven. So there's usually a lot of people around. And in fact, the family's just grown because my little sister and my little brother have both become parents in the last few months. So we'll have two tiny little ones with us two little girls that are going to join the movement. <laughs> so yeah, I'm just quite excited to, to fight with them as to who actually gets the spare room and who's on the sofa and who has to go elsewhere. So it'll be quite quiet. I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to switch off a little bit, um, try and get some perspective because I think that uh, you will know this and all your listeners will know this. I think sometimes we run ourselves a bit ragged and sometimes it's good to just switch off oh, and yeah. <laughs> I don't know, try and take a moment and just figure out, like sort yourself out, sort your mind out. I'd like to clear my mind a little bit as well. That would be helpful for me, I think. Definitely. And last question is, what are your self-care practices? Oh, self-care. I just always thought I was organized, but some people think that I'm r ridiculously maybe strict <laughs> with my kind of Excel spreadsheets or like with my lists and things like that. For me, that is actually a kind of form of self-care. Okay. It sounds a little bit weird, but I need clarity in in focus. And so if I'm able to just sort myself, sort my thinking out and sort my priorities, that's, that's a huge thing. Aside from that, I still play football. I love it. I love it so much. So I'm still playing on Friday nights and um, mainly with a bunch of guys that in the, the Lewis FC vets team. So <laughs> nice. I'm still doing that. And also Lewis is in the most beautiful part of the English countryside. So I've, um, just bought a pair of kind of trail trainers. So trying to go out running on the on the downs as well, which are, are beautiful. So those are the things that I'm I try and keep me a bit grounded. Yeah, that's beautiful. That sounds amazing. And thank you so and much. And making banana bread as well. And making banana bread, yes. Just wanted to say thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down. Where can our listeners find your work? 
Sure. So um, Twitter's the main one for me. So it's at Maggie Murphy without a U in the Murphy. You should be able to find us. And just find Lewis FC as well. Check out our website. Um, it's really important that you follow the story of Lewis FC women, Lewis FC as a club and see what we're doing. That would be great to have more people come and find us there. That'd be fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. So Lewis is for all of our listeners is L-E-W-E-S-F-C, I believe. So please check them out. Maggie, again, thank you so much for being on Burn It All Down, for making the strides and, you know, encouraging everybody else to do the same. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Hope everyone had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Um, Holidays, you know, upon us. We did want to have a little bit of a fun discussion about holiday traditions and sports. Jess? Yeah. So, you know, Thursday this past week, I was at um, a Thanksgiving eating party. It was lovely. Thank you to my friends that had me. And on the TV was football. And I very rarely watch football anymore these days, which maybe we can talk about that at some point on this podcast. But I still found myself watching the Chicago Bears eke out the win on the road at Detroit. And then the Buffalo Bills (laughs) crush the Dallas Cowboys uh, in Dallas. And the Lions have been hosting uh, a Thanksgiving NFL game since 1934, the Cowboys since 66. The NFL added the third game, which this year was between the New Orleans Saints and the Atlanta Falcons. They added that in 2006. And I think when I was like thinking back on it, I think I've watched football on Thanksgiving every single year that I've been alive. It's like this this long-standing tradition that I just can't help. And so, you know, as Brenda said, this got us thinking about holiday sports traditions. And so like the NFL on Thanksgiving, you got NBA on Christmas. Rose Bowl is played every year on New Year's Day. I read that in England on Boxing Day, the day after Christmas, there's always a slate of football games. A rugby league starts up. I'm sure there's a lots of amazing holiday sports traditions around the world. And if you celebrate one, like please tweet it at us or post a Facebook comment about it. Like I'd really love to hear about what people are doing around sports and holidays. But there are two separate things that I was thinking about when I was prepping for this. So the first was my own holiday sports traditions. And I really feel like for the longest time, uh, it was Thanksgiving weekend and mainly rivalry matchups in college football. And it was always football, football, football this time of year for me. Yesterday, and uh, Aaron and I were reminiscing about our days at Florida State. And it, they always played Florida. They played yesterday, uh, this time of year. And we were like remembering that time we froze our toes off uh, in the stadium watching. And But I actually don't think I have a sports holiday tradition at this point. The closest thing I could think is July 4th with Wimbledon or maybe the Labor Day with US Open. Like now it's all tennis based. Um, And the other thing that I was thinking about too, and maybe this is like me being like making it not as fun as it should be, but also just like the way that sports and holidays seem to like seamlessly go together. And it did seem like really good background for like a group of people who didn't like friendly strangers who don't know a lot about each other. And I can imagine if I like you're in the middle of a family reunion and it was like tension filled that like having football on is an easy thing to turn to. But then of course I was like biting my tongue <laughs> as we were watching because I'm a Debbie Downer about football, but it's not my idea of a relaxing holiday to fight with people I don't know <laughs> about <laughs> sports. So I was just quiet about it. Um, Aaron was giving me looks like 
keep it down, just like you know, keep it together. <laughs> Do you guys have holiday traditions around sports? And Shreen, I wanted to ask you specifically: like, are there Canadian things that us Americans wouldn't know about? Well, our Thanksgiving is, I was going to say, as it should be in October, <laughs> but uh, no judgment or there. No, I'm already planning to be watching the Raptors play the Celtics on Christmas Day. A lot of my, a lot of my uh, history of Christmas Day, because I don't actually celebrate, but it doesn't mean that other communities don't get together during that time because all of us are off. And it's usually the one day that everybody in the family or extended family is not working. So we get together. There's definitely NBA playing. And I personally watch The Sound of Music because it's always on. So, but like, I think that there's a lot of other ways. And I love what you said about like whether it's hockey or sports being a buffer when you're at family gatherings, because then as long as nobody talks about the politics of those things, I'm usually okay but um but it's 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 a really great way to do it and and, you know there are in the summertime at summertime parties there's always WNBA happening I know that there's some picnics in this one it was really nice to see I was at a park picnic and one parent like he was so obsessed with the game that was happening I think it was the mystic so he had a radio and I don't know where he found the feed on the radio of a WNBA game but I remember him trying to struggle with it to get it so I mean the good thing is with technology we can take it wherever we go everywhere I was in the summer I had TSN downloaded on my phone I could watch a women's world cup game anywhere so not specific to traditions, but like there's ways for us to take that stuff with us wherever we go now, which I think is incredibly helpful. So with this past weekend, I know there's a lot of NF, there's a lot of football happening for you folks in the U.S. Like it's I always associate American Thanksgiving with football and Black Friday, like shopping and the videos of people going wild in like buying things. So, I mean. So that's what it is. And then we'll see, like, uh, as well, New Year's Day, there's hockey. I'll be watching hockey on New Year's Day for sure at some point. So uh, just to expand a little bit on the Lions thing. (laughs) 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 So I grew up and it was always on. But, like, a lot of working class families, our TV was always on, period. Right. It was like this thing. I don't know. Maybe other classes did it, too. I don't really know. But I always associate it with like a Midwestern kind of like the TVs just never shut off. Like people just sleep with it. Everything, you know. Um, And so the Lions were always what we sort of planned the timing of dinner around. And so that was always a really big deal. And really, the, the Lions have played since 1934, which actually, though, just to say is part of trying to get the Lions to Detroit. That's the year that they moved to Detroit from Ohio. And it was moved by this guy who was some radio guy, can't Richards, George Richards or something. It, super colonial sort of name. <laughs> anyway, he had some pull and the Chicago Bears were really good. And he thought if they got them in there, um, they could make it into a ticket, a big ticket gate, because people didn't have that much to do. And so they sold out for the first time during, you know, Thanksgiving. And it's funny, because I always just remember, you know, I I mean, they have a losing record. I think it's like uh, 34, 47 or something of all time. I can't really remember, but they normally lose period. So it's one of those games where like people didn't even seem to get upset about it. Like they were just in some sort of food holiday coma or something. 
And so that's the one thing that I think about is like, it was, it was such a tradition that people didn't seem to get upset about it. And we should just say, you know, the history of Thanksgiving as a celebration of colonialism in such a way that hides the violent genocide of indigenous peoples is already problematic. And then on top of it, to think about early football in the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania and all of that, it, it is enough to give you heartburn. Linz? Yeah, I was going to say, I've, I've gotten to love Christmas NBA basketball for that reason, because NBA is always like a fun conversation piece, you know, and I think more so than football. Um, so I've enjoyed having um, those games. I feel like just in the past few years, like having those games on during, you know, on in the background. I think you're right, Jess. I mean, look, sports is so much of like the air we breathe, right? Like the culture we just kind of soak in that it kind of is fitting to have it on in the background, <laughs> like at these big events. For me personally, like it's not the big holidays I kind of associate with sports. It's more like the smaller moments. Like Father's Day is usually during the US Open, Golf US Open. And, you know, I always remember growing up and watching that, watching the final round with my dad on Father's Day um, is a memory like I will always associate. Tennis is always around like usually Memorial Day or in Labor Day or, you know, during tennis grand slams. And so kind of having those Mondays off and, you know, watching all day of tennis is always really kind of part of the 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 culture. And yeah, I don't know. I, I love, you know, the I do love like the merging of kind of marking your calendar by the sports calendar, um, which is something I think like we all do. But I do wish that women's sports like fit better into these moments over the weekend. And I'll, this was like a precursor to my burn pile. But, you know, the women's basketball are doing these Thanksgiving tournaments, too. And they're not getting anywhere near the coverage that men's tournaments are getting. And a lot of that's because the men's tournaments have these traditions and they have these spots on TV already established. And I think women's sports sometimes need to be more creative about picking their spots to do these things because ultimately it's hard to crack through. I always think that the WNBA needs to do more on July 4th. WNBA takes July 4th off now. Like what if the WNBA made that a big day of games, you know, instead, because uh, there's not much else going on on the sporting calendar. So I, I wish that. But I do want to give a shout out to one of my favorite sports related traditions, which is Cam Newton's Thanksgiving holiday. Uh, he does his big gives away to I think about 1300 kids in Charlotte every year does a Thanksgiving jam. So he feeds them all like a full Thanksgiving meal and then gives them all a Thanksgiving meal to take home. And um, he always has all these volunteers. He's always really, you know, front and center. I mean, if you ever see Mm. Cam Newton interact with children, like there's nothing more pure in this world. (laughs) (laughs) It is just so pure. And, you know, I miss Cam Newton so much because he's out injured this year and there are talks that he might not be back in Carolina, which, oh man, I would have some feelings about, but uh, it was great to see him being himself and enjoying himself and, you know, giving back to the community. And it's one of those fun Thanksgiving traditions because he really puts his face and his personality into it. And like a lot of the charity things we see. Aw, Shireen. Yeah. Just to sort of wrap up this beautiful thing. And, you know, I appreciate you, Lens, and 
So I love that idea of we see the generosity of the players out there and so many of them do these things and don't get a lot of publicity. Like there's so many players that go out and do really, really cool stuff and like all our, you know, respect to them. One of the last things I was just going to say was that on seeing also the traditions of athletes and what they do on sports, uh, around sports and community on these holidays, like just wanted to add that Colin Kaepernick was at Alcatraz and he was, you know, just basically being very, very clear about that he was on Indigenous land and he specified which land that was and he talked about the history of this, you know, of this day and what it meant in the genocide of Native peoples. And I just think about that because, you know, when we think about that and the reach that he has to these sports fans and within sports, it was really impactful. So, so much solidarity and respect to those out there doing that work. And just lastly, Ava DuVernay tweeted about this really cool uh, website that it's I think it's land nativeland.ca and you can go there and you just enter your location it will tell you what land you stand on and I think that was and I saw a lot of athletes doing this and I was like this is amazing I didn't think I would ever see this like it's just really powerful and we're talking about the holiday and when we're talking about a holiday with a very brutal history I think it would be really helpful and you know Colin Kaepernick is a great reminder of that. Now it's time for everybody's favorite segment, the burn pile, where we take everything that we've hated in sports this week and throw it on a flaming incinerator. Lindsay. Yeah, so this is a continuation of what I was talking about. But there was so much great women's college basketball on over this weekend, this long weekend. And I got to see absolutely zero of it because of the way it was set up. Now, I pay for a Big Ten Network subscription because of Maryland. I like to keep an eye on Maryland. And I pay for, you know, the beefed up cable sports package, um, which is all a lot of extra stuff a month. And I pretty much expect and usually can watch, you know, either through streaming or on TV itself, all the games I need to watch. Well, not anymore. Um, So this big Thanksgiving tournament for women's college basketball was only available on this service that I really didn't know about called Flow Sports. And that they were advertising it as a $12.99 per month fee, but that was only if you paid for the full year at once oh my <laughs> uh, God. to get to watch these games cost $30 for a one month subscription. Oh, $30. That is so much money. And to kind of exacerbate this, I tried to watch some ACC games and found out that Xfinity, the cable network I provide, doesn't offer the ACC network. And so I can't now get, I couldn't get some soccer games. I was trying to watch the NCAA, the soccer tournament and couldn't watch those games because I didn't get ACC network. And then I also don't get SEC network because I'm not in the SEC area. (laughs) So I just like, I was trying to watch women's sports. I was trying to have them on in the background while I was working on newsletter stuff this weekend and completely struck out. I couldn't get them. Or I mean, not at least the games that I wanted, not the marquee games. And I ended up missing out on a lot of great stuff. And it just, it makes me so furious. And hopefully by the time you're listening to this, the newsletter on this will be out at Power Play so you can read more about my rage. But I just want to throw my inability to watch women's sports and these constant barriers to entry onto the burn pile. Burn. 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 Jessica. 
Yeah, so before Michigan played Michigan State in football a couple weekends ago, a fraternity at Michigan had one of those shitty bedsheet banners, you know the, what I'm talking about, hanging outside mm. their house that read, quote, you can't touch us, Larry Nasser." which of course, if you listen to Burn It All Down, you know, references the former Michigan State sports doctor who sexually abused hundreds of athletes, mainly gymnasts, while working for the school. Based on everything I know about bedsheet banners at fraternity houses, this was, I guess, supposed to be a joke, though what exactly about this is funny, it's, it's hard to pin down. Aria Gerson, a sports editor at the University of Michigan student paper, The Michigan Daily, wrote a piece last week for the paper titled, Their Scandal is Not Your Rivalry, and her lead is about that banner. Also, a disclosure, she interviewed me for the piece and quotes me in it. Uh, Gerson writes, quote, In weaponizing these scandals, these failures that hurt hundreds of people people minimize them. And that's just it, right? That this kind of taunting turns violence, institutional failure, and trauma into a punchline to be used in a stupid sports game to taunt a rival. They strip away the reality of the harm and repackage it for their own ends. They flatten it all so it fits on a boy-made banner that will get a fraternity highlighted on a barstool sports Twitter post and high fives from other dude bros. And as I told Aria, and as she writes in the piece, No place is immune from this gendered violence or failing survivors who come forward. Not the University of Michigan, no matter what they want to think about it, and certainly not fraternities anywhere. And the thing is, this week also reminded us that the same fandom that often so easily mocks gendered violence is also deeply antagonistic to any criticism of how a school handles reports of that violence. Brenda Tracy, who I interviewed on episode 67 of Burn It All Down, is a survivor who was gang raped by multiple football players years ago. She's now an advocate who runs an organization called Set the Expectation, whose mission is to combat, quote, sexual and physical violence through raising awareness, giving back, education, and direct engagement with coaches, young men, and boys in high school, collegiate, and professional athletic programs. She speaks to athletes all over the country on the regular in hopes of changing the kind of sports culture that actively minimizes gendered violence. Last week, someone sent a letter to Tracy's house that said, just a warning, There's really upsetting language here. It's time to die, cunt. If this anthrax doesn't kill you, my AR will. She wrote on Twitter that, quote, when I looked at my hands, there was a white powdery substance on them. I called 911 immediately and they instructed my family and I to go outside. So we went out in 30th degree weather, underdressed while police, fire, medical and hazmat responded to my home. I was literally standing in the middle of the street, not allowed to touch anyone or anything in case I was contaminated. Yellow tape blocked the streets, and my neighbors all stood around watching as I stood there wondering if I was contaminated or, God forbid, my family was. After a couple hours, the hazmat team determined it wasn't anthrax, but the FBI and police are taking this as a credible threat on my life, and there is now an open FBI and police investigation. I'm not sure if anyone knows yet if this was an angry football fan, but it seems that the odds are high. Tracy is trolled hard and constantly by fans of athletic programs that she criticizes. And Tracy seems to assume that the odds are high that it's a fan, tweeting that even after a threat like this, she will continue her work. Some people responded to this by calling her a liar. So sure, maybe it's a dumb banner made by dumb boys, but that's part of the same continuum that includes an advocate receiving a death threat in her own home. And so this week, I just want to burn all of this together. So burn. 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 Shireen? I'm just going to be metaphorically burning some truly, truly awful 
parents and students of the Almont Raiders, um, which also includes the marching band because they can be toxic as fuck. So the Denby high school players who went to play against the Altmont Raiders decided to take a knee during the anthem. And this is what set off a terrible chain of events, which included Denby high school players being spit on and pelted with garbage all at high school in the Detroit area. These youth who were very conscious about what they wanted to do and intentional were treated so badly. And it's not that I give ever high school kids a past to be racist and horrible. But what upset me more, in addition to that, was the parents. And I'm just going to read a little bit from the, the article that we will attach in the show notes, just to give you an idea. It's from the Metro Times. And it said that, quote, officials halted the game against Altmont High School with three minutes left because of the excessive personal foul penalties. But the ugliness began when parents took issue with the Denby players taking a knee during the national anthem. And Denby coach Dion Godfrey told the Detroit Free Press this. He said, our cameraman is white and was filming near some Altman line, um, bands. And during the national anthem, he heard them saying, look at these N-words taking the knee. They don't even know why they're doing it. And they kept going. And the language in this is really awful. And so just a little bit of a trigger warning and content warning for what's coming next. Godfrey said that Denby's coaches were called, quote unquote, wiggers. And that grown men and women started spitting on her kids as they walked the ramp. They were throwing, throwing food, cups, and whatever. Godfrey added, they called my student trainer a little monkey. And they were saying, who let them off their leashes? They need to be on a leash. They should never have been here in the first place. End quote. And I, this is extremely upsetting. It's, it's so horribly barbaric in the language. And the, these are adults. These are grown-ass parents. And then we wonder where this racism comes from. It's a learned behavior. And it's it's I'm so bothered by this because, and the restraint of these kids to hear this, to be pelted with garbage in almost in, in almost 2020. I, I just, I mean, for me, I, I had all these questions. I had a contacted a friend of mine who's a lawyer in Michigan. I'm like, is that assault? If they're throwing garbage at, she's like, it depends on what happened and where. Like, there's so many contextual issues. But I'm like, this is absolute, like, racialized assault. And these are this is these are kids at a high school football game. And, you know, the marching band was vicious. I didn't think you could be vicious with a trombone, but apparently you can. And, like, we're complicit in this type of, you know, verbal violence. And it's just, I want to burn the whole fucking thing down just burn burn well my my burn feels very small this week in comparison <laughs> i am going to burn the hypocrisy of expecting players to be loyal when you treat them like garbage and i don't feel particularly sorry for patriots kicker nick falk like I'm not like up at night or anything, but I'd just like to point out that this past week he had emergency appendectomy surgery on on Thursday and the following day was released from his team, the Patriots. And <laughs> yeah, he was fired the next day because he couldn't play Sunday or released. I don't know what you call it. 
Um, and you all know I rarely mess with U.S. football. Like, I don't know. I don't know crap about it, right? <laughs> um, but I do know that, like other sports, there's a continual complaint about us living in a player-centered world and the power of players and how they need to be loyal to their clubs and that romantic idea. So I just want to use the case of Nick Folk, who apparently can be re-signed, if he recovers and is able to kick soon enough again, I don't know everything about the rules in regard to that, but it's just one of the many, 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 many cases. I hope his appendectomy went well, but again, in which you see this just huge hypocrisy between expecting players to be loyal and treating them like garbage. So I just want to burn that. Burn. All right. Now, after all that burning, we'd like to celebrate some of the amazing accomplishments of women in sport this week. Before we do, we would like to acknowledge the passing of Ethel Johnson, ni Wingo. This legendary black wrestler was one of three sisters in the golden ages of wrestling. She was famous and traveled in the South, where she was subjected to severe racism. And although she was only five foot five and smaller than most of her opponents, she was known as a hurricane, quick and powerful. She retired when she was 41, married, and had a family. She passed at 83. Rest in power, Ethel. Honorable mentions this week go to Mariko Yugeta, who ran two hour, 59 minute, 15 seconds at the Shimonoseki Kaiko Marathon on November 3rd, 45 seconds under three hours and a full three minutes and 35 seconds faster than the previous record set by Claudine Marchadere of France in 2007. Congratulations to former Chicago Bandits All-NPF catcher Rachel, Rachel Folden, who was hired by the Chicago Cubs as their lead minor league hitting lab tech. <laughs> That's a very specific job for rookie league Mesa. The first all-girls tackle football team, which will begin thanks to Ottawa Panthers, who have started a program dedicated to the development of girl athletes. Justine Siegel, legendary girls and women's baseball coach who will become the first woman on a coaching staff of the Liga Mexicana del Pacifico, which is an important men's baseball league in Mexico. She'll be coaching for the Naranjeros in Hermosillo. Congrats to USA hurdler Delilah Mohammed, Olympic and world champion who was named Nike Athlete of the Year, along with Kenyan runner Eliud Kipchoge. Can I get a drum roll, please? The winners are the Mexican Women's League, Liga Mexicana Femenil, whose final between Rayadas and Tigres Femenil brought in 41,615 spectators. After beginning this season with a very troubled series of contract negotiations, basic reticent support, accusations of harassment, everything looked like it was going to be an impossible season to finish. So congratulations to the professional soccer women in Mexico. Okay, well, what is good in everybody's world? Let's start with Shireen. Okay, so I know that this is going to going to come as a shock to all of our flamethrowers, but undoubtedly, my episode with Grindr Chedha was the best thing to ever happen Yay. in my life. 
And, you know, I just, it was so wonderful to be able to do it. I was really nervous whether, whether it would record okay. I'd never recorded an interview on a digital recorder before that way. And it was just really awesome. And, you know, thank you guys so much. And thank you, Flamethrowers, for being as excited as me. Because <laughs> a lot of you were really excited and I really appreciated that. My son bought me fuzzy plaid pajamas, which I am wearing at the moment. So thank you, Safe, for those because it is cold as cold and freezing rain here. And just two more quick things. Today, I am hosting the first annual board game family day with my son and family. So there'll be 15 people and we're taking it really seriously. Like Salahuddin, my son is like draft, like creating a draft and the teams and stuff like this. We're very, very serious about our board games. So we'll see what happens. We'll see what relationships will be broken by the end of this day. You know, like that's the way board games work. And most excited about as well as going to Princeton. Yeah. I'm going to see Brenda next week. And maybe Amira, she might drive down if the weather permits. But just really excited to also hang out with Steph and Meg, Steph Yang and Meg Linhan and Brenda. And I forced them into a <laughs> Christmas present exchange. So I'm really excited about that. All right, Jessica. Yeah, well, I've been gone for the last few weeks, so I feel like I've like saved up my stuff. I was gone a couple weeks ago because it was my birthday and I took Yay. the weekend off, so that was fun. And then my family went to Los Angeles for a few days and we spent two of those days at Disneyland and I just had a lot of fun. Like it was just a bunch of fun. I never I'm from Central Florida, so I have been to the Magic Kingdom many times in my life, but Disneyland was new and I put an Instagram post up of all my faces on all the rides where they take your picture of your face because it looks ridiculous. <laughs> and so I put up a little collage of those. And then, of course, I got to eat a bunch of great food this last few days. I made some yeast rolls. I made some shortbread cookies. And I made these things called pecan tassies, which are like mini pecan pies. You do them in like a mini muffin pan. So they're like bite size. And my favorite thing, he's going to kill me if he, he never listens. He won't know. Aaron was trying to remember the name of them the other day. And he called them pecan pasties. <laughs> And I have just been <laughs> laughing about that uh, for days now. That's a whole new um, thing. It's a whole new thing. And the last thing, I read an amazing romance novel that just gave me, like, so much happiness. I cried so hard at the end in, like, the best way. It's called Lady Daring Takes a Lover. It's by Julianne Long, who's one of my favorite authors. I'm reading the second book in the series now. I just... It it made me glow. I was so happy after I read it. So that's Lady Daring Takes a Lover. Highly recommend. Oh, great. Well, I'm super excited about the Princeton Soccer Conference, which is going to be held December 7th and 8th at Princeton University. And I'll get to hang out with Shereen and Peter Leggi, Laurent Dubois, who are friends of the show, as well as Steph Yang and Meg. And that's going to be really fun. I expect you to learn about a lot of people's work. So you can check out the full conference. We've been tweeting about it. There's things like football for good and development and also academic talks. The one that we're the panel that we're also on is called more than exports about the state of soccer in the global South. And yes, I'm still a little disappointed that we've been unable to convince them to call it football instead of soccer, but I understand. Um, <laughs> not surprised. The other thing is it's really awesome not to travel on Thanksgiving too. It's been a great catch-up week of grading and whatnot. And, you know, I, I miss my family. I love doing it, but it's also kind of nice to avoid it. Lindsay, what's good with you? 
Um, what's good with me is Dwayne Wade <laughs> and his family, <laughs> Gabrielle Union, yes. and I am just obsessed with them. So, uh, a couple things happened this week that just made my love for them grow. First of all, in a ridiculously horrible new like injustice, Gabrielle Union was fired from the set of America's Got Talent um, because she spoke out against uh, racism and sexism on set and. Um, uh, another Julian Howe, another woman her con- who was white, her contract wasn't renewed either. And so, you know, just behind the scenes and in public, Gabrielle Union is fighting the good fight. And another, so Gabrielle Union posted on Instagram a photo of her and Dwayne Wade and their daughter and their son, Zion, who is 12. And Zion has... Um, they earlier this year posted about them being at the Pride Parade in Miami supporting Zion. And in this photo, Zion is wearing like a crop top and he's got his nails done. And of course, people freaked out. And, you know, there were a lot of comments on Twitter and on Instagram about, you know, Dwayne Wade not being a good father. And Dwayne Wade's response was incredible. He said... As a parent, my only goal is that my kids feel that I see them, love them, and support them. I've seen some post-Thanksgiving hate on social about my family. Stupidity is a part of the world we live in, so I get it. But here's the thing. I've been chosen to lead my family, not y'all. So we will continue to be us and support each other with pride, love, and a smile. And, uh, like, what a phenomenal role model and I think, like, that type of love and to see that coming from like this, you know, NBA player, you know, NBA star, who's kind of the stereotype of just like machismo, you know, to see that type of love for his family is incredible. And I think that it just makes me, it makes my heart warm. So thank you, Dwayne Wade. That's it for this week and burn it all down. Though we're done for now, you can always burn all day and night with our fabulous array of merchandise, including mugs, pillows, tees, hoodies, and bags. What a better way to crush toxic patriarchy in sports. And, you know, holidays, hint, hint, hint. Also, before we leave, I would like to thank our patrons for their generous support and to remind our new flamethrowers about the Patreon campaign. You pledge a certain amount monthly to become an official patron of the podcast, and in exchange, you get access to special content and awards. We just really deeply thank our Patreon community and appreciate how much we've been able to continue and develop this podcast because of your support. Also, Burn It All Down lives on SoundCloud, but can be found on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and TuneIn. We appreciate your reviews and feedback, so please do subscribe and rate and let us know what we did well and how we can improve. Ratings are really super important in terms of leading and directing new listeners to our podcast, so they're uber appreciated. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Burn It All Down Pod and on Twitter at BurnItDownPod. You can email us at BurnItAllDownPod at gmail.com, in which case you'll get a very polite answer from Shireen. Check our website at (laughs) www.BurnItAllDownPod.com where you'll find previous episodes, transcripts, and a link to the Patreon. 
I would just like to say, on behalf of Lindsay Gibbs, Shreen Ahmed, and Jessica Luther, keep burning on, but not out. Um.